I remember a life before the internet. I was born in '91, so I don't know what a life without television was like. But I do remember a time before the internet. I would often go outside to play, and that entailed going to my next door neighbors' houses and knocking on their doors and asking if David or Lindsay or Wesley or Robert could come out and play in the street. If I wasn't outside, I was playing video games with my brothers. But I do remember when we got a, a computer. I remember the unbelievable amount of excitement I had when I realized that I'd soon be able to play the same Star Trek and Star Wars games my dad would play on his work computer. It would be a long time before I was given permission to double-click the blue Internet Explorer icon on my own, but I didn't care. The internet was boring at the time. I just wanted to be a Jedi with a double-hilted yellow lightsaber. By the time I was a teenager, though, my relationship with the internet had changed. In 2005, upon turning 13 years old, the internet was the most incredible thing in my life. It was my gateway away from a life that I didn't want to live at the time. It was my portal to endless amounts of entertainment, as evidenced by the thousands of hours I logged playing Halo Combat Evolves online multiplayer. It was quite literally my life, and it completely replaced the life that I had before. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that, in many ways, it defines my life to this present day. I'm going to make a sharp and hard distinction on what exactly we are going to cover in this episode because the internet, at least as we understand it today, is such a massive behemoth that it's almost impossible to talk about it without reducing it to a conversation about social media or YouTube and streaming culture. Just to make the conversation easier in terms of reducing the scope and the breadth of the internet to something more digestible, as much as we can, I want us to go back to when the internet. Which, according to Merriam-Webster, is defined as an electronic communications network that connects computer networks and organizational computer facilities around the world, was starting to become more readily available to the average American consumer, which wasn't really the case until the mid-90s or so. The reason for this is because we're going to devote entire episodes to the consequences of the internet—smartphones, social media, streaming culture, etc.—and because some of the critiques of the internet that we see and talk about today aren't really all that new, but were beginning to manifest themselves relatively early on in the internet's popular life. Specifically, we're going to look at two major changes brought by the internet. One of which is going to seem like a well, duh observation, but is necessary for the significance of the second change. First, we are going to look at how the internet was revolutionary as a medium because it allowed for truly bi-directional communication, and second, how this bi-directional communication began to shape the way we understand community. What makes the internet such a big deal was that this was the first mass medium to incorporate two-way communication as one of its key features. In the previous episodes, as we've been talking about books and television and the differences between the two, we've not mentioned that books and television share one significant common feature: they're only one-way streets in communicating ideas. The author of the book knows that there will be no way for a reader to respond directly to the author's message through the medium that brought that message to the reader. The disgruntled reader can write a letter to the author, or perhaps stop him or her in the street at a, at a book signing to voice their grievances. But 
Otherwise, the book doesn't allow for a two-way conversation to take place. And the same is true of television. As much as you'd like to think that yelling at that ref after he makes a bad call will change anything, you know he can't hear you. Neither can the newscaster or the political figure that you dislike hear you as you express your disagreement or disgust at what they're saying. The internet, though, opened the door for that to change. If mediums are not value neutral, and if they promote and encourage certain forms of engagement over others, then I think it's safe to say the internet values two-way communication because it makes it possible in a way no medium before it could. And it is big enough so that it can become such a wide two-way street that anyone can talk to anyone about anything with as many number of people that want to join in. In 2018, pointing out the fact that the internet is a bi-directional medium of communication is tantamount to saying that the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. There's nothing profound about it. But at the time, though, this was a big deal. Yes, there was one other significant bi-directional medium of communication before the internet. may have heard of something called a landline phone, but you didn't use phones in the way that you used the internet. First of all, you had to have someone's number if you wanted to be able to reach them, which was a challenge if there was a cute girl or guy you wanted to possibly date. And unless you were using the phone for business purposes, you generally knew who was going to be on the other line when you dialed a number. If you dialed a wrong number or the wrong person picked up, you would redial the right number or leave a message, but you typically wouldn't spend time talking with someone on the other end of the line if that person was a stranger. There's a reason why the stranger making a scary phone call motif is one of the oldest tropes of horror and suspense films. It's a form of intentional communication that shouldn't be there. With the internet, though, that intentionality isn't necessarily removed, but the parameters governing that intentionality are significantly expanded. Generally, on early internet forums, it was expected that you not know the person you were talking to. But so long as they weren't being creepy or abusive, talking to them was okay. The same was true of email and, to perhaps a lesser extent, messenger programs. Instead of that intentionality being governed by wanting to talk to someone you knew or for an intentional business purpose, like it was with landline phones, intentionality on the early internet was governed by the subject matter that you wanted to talk about. You were willing to talk to people you didn't know because they shared the same interests you did. And this was the second significant change that the internet brought. Because it was a bi-directional medium, it made bypassing your physical community possible. You could now talk to people who shared a common interest regardless of any geographical constraint. What is a community? Or perhaps more helpfully, how do communities form? That's a massive subject, and I'm not going to be able to give it the attention it really deserves here, but in the most general of terms, communities form when, one, multiple people are able to talk to each other, and two, over a shared common interest. Your physical community is dictated by the people that you talk to over a common interest that you share. It could be the coworkers in your workplace, fellow parents that attend the same school as your kids, 
other people in your church or your next door neighbors living on the same street. Before the internet, your physical community was all you had. If you lived in a city or town where you didn't know anyone who shared your passions, your interests, your hobbies, causes, or political views, you were kind of stuck with that. If there was a topic that you wanted to talk about, but you didn't know anyone else who wanted to talk about it with you, that was your situation and you had to deal with it. In larger cities, this may not have been quite as big of a problem, but if you came from a small town, one like Claude, Texas, where my parents currently live with a population of 1,300 people, you had no relief from that. The idea of belonging to a community beyond what you were physically confined to wasn't possible until the internet. Again, in 2018, this is not a significant revelation, but in the 90s and early 2000s, this was a big deal. It allowed you to bypass the limitations set by your immediate physical community and to choose to belong to communities of people that cared about the same things you did, regardless of where these people were actually located. Now you had a choice. If you wanted to, you could invest in your physical community and the real flesh and blood relationships you have with your neighbors, or you could invest in a digital community and the people who you know next to nothing about other than the fact that they care about the same things you care about. But where you might have been stuck with your physical community and have to deal with things or issues that you disliked, With the internet, you could enter and exit communities and relationships based on your discretion. You could consume content and engage with others at your convenience. You could focus only on the things you wanted to focus on and totally ignore the rest. The internet allowed for anyone to have things their way, right down to choosing the place where they felt like they belong. In the previous episodes about television, we introduced the idea that the context you hear a message in shapes the message itself, and that contrary to what the late Reverend Graham and other leaders thought in the early days of television, the medium does not result in a one-to-one transmission of a message. We also talked about how when you hear a sermon in a church that you participate in a shared experience in a congregation and that being a part of the gathered people of God will shape the way you hear a sermon compared to watching the same sermon at home in your pajamas on your television. Television introduced the possibility of participating in a religious experience isolated from a physical gathering. And it's no secret that Americans were tolerant of the idea of getting a sermon in a church and getting a sermon in one's home, and that these were two legitimate options. But the internet takes this situation and adds the possibility of connecting to others in a context where connecting to other people wasn't possible. In a pre-internet world, you could stay at home and watch a religious broadcast, and the only other personal connections you had in that moment were those shared by the others in the room with you. With the advent of the internet, staying at home didn't automatically mean that you weren't connected to a community of some kind. The internet allowed you to connect to others regardless of the distance or space in between. 
and in doing so, reshaped the idea of community and allowed for a concept of community unhinged from the physical concept of space to exist. It should go without saying that this impact on the concept of community has significant implications for a religion with a community-centered orientation as being one of its main driving identities. In 1 Peter 1, the apostle tells us that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, and that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. All of these terms refer to a group of people, and before the internet, that group of people was understood in terms of a physical community known as the church, comprised of Christians. The internet introduced a new type of community, and as Heidi A. Campbell and Stephen Garner explain, Online communities exist as loose social networks where members have varying levels of affiliation and commitment. This is in contrast to traditional communities, which often exist as more tightly bounded social structures overseen by family and institutional ties. Online religious communities often function quite differently than conventional religious groups and institutions, where membership is established through a set of rituals such as confirmation, baptism, or an act of public confession. Online religious communities are often formed through people's commitment to a shared interest, and membership is based on active participation in group conversation and online activities rather than affiliation or membership rituals. In assessing the internet, I don't know if it's possible to respond purely in a technologically optimistic or technologically pessimistic manner. When it came to television, I think it was obvious that I hold a pessimistic view of television as a whole, and I think it brought more harm than good when it was applied to subjects and disciplines that it shouldn't have been applied to. With the internet, however, I've already spoken positively of it as being a medium that amplifies the power of the spoken and written word, the medium that Christianity is ultimately rooted in, and early on that was one of the main ways the internet was used by Christians. While there were examples of online congregations popping up in the 90s, most notably the First Church of Cyberspace, how's that for a dated term? Most of the uses of the internet by early Christians revolved around communicating information about Christianity. For example, the United Methodist Information Email Newsletter, which Campbell and Garner note is the first recorded Christian email newsletter to ever exist. I do think there is an inherent difference between reading text in a physical book and reading text on a screen, but at the same time, the internet was making material on Christianity more readily available. And for that, I'm very grateful. But when it comes to the internet's impact on the idea of community, I tend to take a more pessimistic response. And the reason I take that response is because mediums shape the way we interact with each other as a result of the terms of engagement set forth by the medium we interact with. Campbell and Garner, again. Studies of Christian community online have found that theological orientation and religious identity often draws members together. 
Researchers noted that new patterns of social sharing and interaction online may lead to shifts in expectations regarding the nature of community. The ability to interact and exchange ideas with people from different parts of the world from a shared faith perspective can transform members' expectations of how contemporary religious groups could or should function. These expectations create desires for online Christian community members to experiment with and even model in their offline churches new styles of small group interaction, accountability networks, or forms of dialogue experienced online. In other words, the Internet began to shape our interactions with each other because we began to expect our offline interactions to mirror, in some way, our online interactions. And when those offline interactions don't live up to our expectations, we have something better that we can go back to, something that we want to go back to. And I know this to be true because that's what happened to me. I mentioned earlier that when I was a teenager, the internet was a portal to endless amounts of entertainment, but it was also a portal to a community and friendships that I didn't physically have at the time. In 2005, my family moved in with my grandparents to be their live-in caretakers. My grandpa had Parkinson's disease, and he couldn't drive himself or grandma around anymore, so we moved in with them to provide transportation and to help them take care of the house. My grandparents lived an hour away from where we lived. Moving required uprooting from the home, the church, and the neighborhood that I had grown up in, and move into a gated community comprised mostly of retirees and I didn't transition well. I was homeschooled at the time, and so the only time I saw anyone my own age was during Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings at church, and I didn't fit in at all, and I wouldn't feel like I belonged for a couple of years. But that didn't matter to me. I had my networks of Christian halo clans to keep me company. I know it sounds ridiculous, but I was able to spend time with these other believers I had met online and chat and play with them and forge relationships with them that I didn't have at the time. We would pray together. We would discuss the Bible together. We would encourage and support each other, sometimes even financially. It was, quite literally, my life because it was the place where I felt like I belonged. My offline communities were painful to me, and so I wanted nothing to do with them. My online communities brought me joy, and so I wanted to spend as much time there as I could. In a season or space where offline Christianity was painful to me, I had the choice to belong in a space where online Christianity was centered around the things I cared about and brought me joy and satisfaction. And this created a feedback loop where the more time I spent with my online friends, the more my offline life began to look like my online life, which only put me at greater odds with my physical community of Christians because they weren't fulfilling my expectations or desires of how I wanted my offline relationships in the church to work. Eventually, though, I would start making healthy offline relationships, and over time, my relationships with my online friends would fade away. But in a season where I was in a space I didn't want to be in, I had the means to be in a space where I wanted to be, something only made possible by the internet. I think we've reached a point where we can start drawing some big conclusions based off of everything that we've covered in these past episodes. And on the next episode of Breaking the Digital Spell, 
we're going to do just that. We still have quite a bit of ground to cover, but before we get to smartphones and social media, I think we have enough on our plate to show how changes in technology and media have changed the way we think about God. Breaking the Digital Spell is a podcast made possible because my good friend Andrew Akins is able and willing to take time out of his busy schedule to help me uh, put these together and take charge of the mixing and the mastering and everything else that uh, goes on beyond just recording these episodes in my closet and make them sound really good and really, uh, really well done. I'm super thankful for not only just to be able to call him my friend, but for the work that uh, he's done here. Also, this podcast is made possible because of my wife, Melissa, who is able to sit down with me before I go into said closet and look over what I've written and make sure that when I go into said closet, that everything is ready to go. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you can like our Facebook page and follow the show on Twitter at Digital Spell, where I'll be posting articles or other writings relevant to each episode uh, throughout the week. And wherever you're listening to this, please consider subscribing and leaving a review and maybe sharing it on the internet. That's why we have social media pages, is so you can share it on the internet. I would really appreciate it if you did that. My name is Austin, and together we are breaking the digital spell.